so like obviously a writer. She's like, oh my God, I can hear Amy through the headphones. Wow, audio. Welcome to the podcast verse. I literally had no notion of what the purpose of these headphones were. Have you ever heard of a monitor like other than a computer monitor? Um, yes, but I guess not in this context. Well, welcome. Yeah. Welcome. This isn't going to be on the, in the it probably final, will. final edit, correct? It probably will. All right. Because I, I do work for a tech paper. <laughs> it doesn't speak very well to my knowledge base. Okay. We can cut this part out. He's not going to cut it out. <sighs> really? Today's episode is brought to you by Zahab Jewelry with one M. Hi, welcome to October 7th, Emotionally Raw Coverage. Today's January 8th, it's the 94th day of the war. And joining us here on this lovely Monday evening in Dora's apartment is Ariella Carmel, a Tel Aviv-based reporter for SeaTech. Wait, I'm sorry, can we pause? Yeah. I should have done this before. It's Carmel. Oh, it's Carmel? Yeah, like Carmel, California. It's like it's like oh, that pronunciation. Great. Yeah. Just, we'll do that again. This is embarrassing because we've like known how, each other for like two years. Think like how you At would say it in Hebrew. Think that it was a good time to let me know. I think I just assumed that you knew. Why would I just know? Because it's a Hebrew name. So it's supposed to be like the Hebrew, except without the Israeli Raish. You know, my last name is Sapan, which means sailor. And here, people don't get it. They're just like, oh, so it's Sapan or, you know, Do they where really? does that come from? And I'm like, it's actually Hebrew. Aren't you a native (laughs) Hebrew speaker? Ariella Carmel is a Tel Aviv-based reporter for SeaTech, the English edition of Kalkalist, Israel's top business and economics paper. She was previously a news writer and editor at Haaretz newspaper, which is where we met. She writes about Israeli economics, tech, domestic, and Mideast geopolitics. Ariella is also a graduate student at Tel Aviv University, where she is studying Middle Eastern history. Listeners, before we get into it today, that, that was very uh, lighthearted. We're about to get into some sensitive topics, including about sexual violence. Listener discretion is advised. I don't think there's going to be as much banter as there was in the beginning, so... That that's your warning. Ariella, I am so excited that you're here today. Um, you have this ability to write and speak with such poise and clarity and also sharpness, profound sharpness. In October, you penned two articles. One, Israeli women are under brutal attack and there is complete silence. It was published on the 30th of October before there was the social media account, Me Too Unless You're a Jew, before there was as much uproar as we've been seeing in recent months about the silence of feminist and women's organizations abroad, about the, as the New York Times called it in their recent, I don't know, going to say this sarcastically, discovery about the weaponization of sexual violence by Hamas fighters on October 7th, you really drew 
a microscope to what was going on. And there was another article that you wrote on the 17th of October, just 10 days after October 7th, Dancing on Our Graves, Hamas's War on Israel and the World's Moral Confusion, which I think I was just so struck by, beyond anything else, your ability to live here in this moment with everything going on and to author one of my favorite articles that's been published since the 7th, I'm going to read a short excerpt and then we're going to dive right in. Here we go. Perhaps the most insidious and paradoxical response is denial. Social media, where so much of this discourse has moved, and international media are at times parroting Hamas propaganda, suggesting that Israel is exaggerating or flatly lying about the extent of the carnage perpetrated by Hamas. This is despite the fact that Hamas meticulously documented their crimes and proudly disseminated images and video footage across social media, making their subsequent denial all the more absurd. Due to the rampant skepticism of a public who uncritically consumes Hamas propaganda, but interrogates every sentence written by Israelis, we are not permitted to concentrate on mourning our dead or rebuilding our shattered lives, but must simultaneously act as investigators and prosecutors to collect survivor testimony and proof. For example, reports that beheaded babies were found at Kibbutz Kfar Aza almost immediately elicited widespread skepticism and demand for evidence even though it was confirmed by journalists at the scene, the IDF, which invited foreign and domestic prince to witness the atrocities, the Israeli government, and President Biden. For our listeners who listen to our episodes from around the same time, I was a zoo. I was just like in here crying, ranting, raving. Everything is in that article. Everything from the double standard to the silence in the other article, like, the whole world, all the dots of everything that's just struck me to my core, and you were able to bring that out. And so without further ado, (laughs) I'd love to jump into it with you about kind of where you sense this might be coming from um, and kind of the thread of history that I think stretches back before October 7th. Well, I, I think I'll like I'll thank you, and then I'll yeah, do, yeah, and then yeah, I'll do sure, that. For sure. Okay. Um, you you can take out the um too when you when you edit this, because um, <laughs> I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it a million times. Um, so thank you so much for that kind introduction and. It's a it's a pleasure to be here with you um, and to be on this podcast, which I've become such a fan of and has been a really great resource, I, I think, uh, during these terrible months. It's definitely not a pleasure to be discussing what we're discussing today and which is still an ongoing crisis. It's not an issue that took place three months ago. It's an ongoing, continuing attack. And we were reminded of that today. I just want to highlight that the Daily Mail published um, four images, not just with the permission, but um, I believe with the with the request, at the request 
of families of four uh, female hostages that are still being held in Gaza in Hamas captivity. They're all, um, I believe that they're all Tatsbitaniot. Uh, there are four 19-year-olds who are all soldiers at the Nahroz uh, base. And the images that were released are deeply uh, graphic and distressing. They're all bloody and bruised and uh, clearly in distress. And they're images that hadn't been shared until now because I think unofficially there is a policy within Israeli media and communications that we don't disseminate Hamas uh, propaganda videos uh, on, on, on Israeli media. Typically, we just show screenshots, if any, but not the video in its entirety. And in this case, those images weren't even shared because they're so distressing to look at. But as we approach the 100th day now, I think we're on, are we on day 94 today? So as we approach the 100th day in less than a week of uh, the, ho- the remaining hostages uh, being in captivity, including these four girls, their families have become understandably so desperate to take any opportunity that they can to remind the world that they're still there. And we know uh, with a greater degree of confirmation what kind of conditions they're living through and what they're being subjected to. And it takes on uh, an even greater sense of urgency. Chen Goldstein Almog, um, who was released from captivity, I believe after 51 days, in that Daily Mail piece said that she saw, she encountered some of the females who are still being held in captivity. And this is a quote. There were girls who spent 50 days and more alone When they were sad crying, their captors would stroke them and touch them. They described accounts of sexual abuse under gunpoint on a regular basis. Some of the girls were badly wounded and haven't been getting proper medical care, gunshot wounds, even lost limbs. They said they can cope with the disability, but not with the manner they were constantly violated. Yeah, so um, Chen and her daughter Agam were two of the hostages that were released in the last exchange, for lack of a better term, at the end of November, early December. And both of them uh, have spoken more than once now about not only the conditions that they experienced, but that they also came into contact with hostages that are still there, including uh, young women, and that they they were subjected to sexual assault amongst the various other forms of physical and mental torture that they have been subjected to. And this is in addition to the fact that uh, we know that numerous hostages that have returned reported sexual assault to the doctors that treated them. And it's it's just the worst confirmation of uh, what we all, I think, suspected to be the case and wished uh, deeply that we were wrong, but of course we're not. And I think that it's... Uh, it's so central, the, the the sexual violence of the October 7th attack and the ongoing sexual violence that the women, and, and also, by the way, male hostages have also been subjected to. That's also been made known via the returning hostages and also reports from October 7th. I think it, all of this is so central to understanding the attack in its entirety and the world's reaction to it. I think so much can be 
learned and uh, inferred from the the response or lack thereof from people and organizations who who ought to know better. This is theoretically supposed to be, it should be the least controversial aspect of this conflict, the brutalization and torture and rape of women and, and children, children from the youngest age to grandmothers, all of whom were subjected to sexual assault and uh, mutilation. Somehow this has been um, a subject that an enormous amount of people, including the most senior women's rights and humanitarian organizations in the world, took months to respond to in any respectable or acceptable fashion. It's such a dizzying subject, frankly. We were talking about this before, like, I need to put a trigger warning before this kind of content. And it's wild, right? So I was on this, I attended a webinar about six weeks ago, I think. And amongst the attendees was Ruth Halperin, who's over at Bar Ilan, and, and she's an incredible lawyer and she's been working on this issue. And just like a real powerhouse of these women and, and women that run the rape crisis centers in Israel many of the points that are still with me today are, are range from why go after women, right? This was a systemic, systemic violation of women. They, this didn't happen by accident. They knew exactly what they were doing. Hamas terrorists who were interrogated after they were captured said that they were told by their leaders to violate the Quran, to actually go and, you know, rape, dead, living, doesn't matter. And one of the speakers said the reason that you, that people do that in times of war, and, and that's been going back to millennia, is you go after the home. The, the, the woman is a representation of the home and you kind of go after the sanctity of the home and, and you violate it. And then no one feels safe. And that's the ultimate terror. And it really, really is the ultimate terror. And then the other thing that jumps out at me from that webinar is a doctor who was saying, you know, when we, when a lot of people hear rape, they're like, oh, okay, it was, it was bad. There's going to be mental and emotional damage from that. And, you know, the person will have, there's also physical damage. There's tearing, there's STDs, there's unwanted pregnancies. There was either Hen Goldstein or her daughter, Almog, who, who said, you know, these women don't even have like sanitary pads with which they can they keep healing their wounds. And who knows if they're still being violated. And there were towards the end of the exchanges or right afterwards, there was something that came out of a spokesperson, I believe for the U S state department that said that Hamas intentionally won't release some of the young women because doesn't want the world to find out about what happened to them. There is something so, going back to like losing your train of thought, there's something really dizzying about this subject matter because on a really personal, visceral level, it hits you to your core. And then there's also like, we need to talk about this. We need to talk about every aspect of this. And so much of it isn't discussed. Like you watch the news on primetime. And yeah, even when they do talk about sexual violence, it's like, I don't think most people think about the unwanted pregnancies and the STDs and the physical ramifications of sexual violence. It is such complex subject matter. 
And there is such a double standard in terms of the UN. And I'm wondering, like, what are your thoughts on that? Because, you know, you've gotten to speak to Ruth and other people that are in this arena. And yeah, so yeah, I've, I have a few things to say. So um, yeah, Ruth Halpern Kadari, she's, uh, she's a professor at Barilan, and she's one of the uh, foremost experts in the country on women's rights and international law. And she also served on a UN body uh, that is, it's actually the Committee for Ending Discrimination Against Women. For about 12 years, she was the vice chair of the body. And I, and I, I spoke to her extensively, uh, not just in this article and subsequent articles about the ongoing efforts that Israeli women's rights organizations and activists have been making to uh, uh, over the last several months, since October 7th, to raise awareness about this and to demand action from the United Nations. And the, the the sense of desertion that I think so many Israeli women and, and of course, Israelis in general felt uh, to have experienced something like this, which is, by the way, probably the most well-documented uh, human rights violation and mass atrocity in the modern era. Uh so then, like, that's what's so absurd about the concept of denying this, uh, the magnitude of what unfolded, because the perpetrators themselves were live streaming and filming their slaughter and their torture and their rampage through um, Israeli territory and live streaming and sharing it with the world with glee and, and pride and gusto. And it was only, I think, the, the fall in the following days that someone in the leadership, I guess, put two and two together and realized, well, this is actually undermining our cause. It doesn't really look, it doesn't really look so good for us. And they started taking down a lot of the, the videos. But by that point, like they'd all been disseminated. We, we, we have them all. I think something that I, I want to highlight and about the, the mass rape, and this is something that Dr. Kadari talks about a lot is that it wasn't an incidental or ancillary aspect to the October 7th attack. It was central. It was key. It, the, and there weren't you know, isolated incidents of sexual assault or rape. It was systemic and it was premeditated. And you, you talked about how the concept of and the weaponization of rape in war and in armed conflict, which is something that's been going on since, you know, for millennia, we have a storied history of uh, using violence against women um, in order to drive a political, uh, to serve a political purpose in the context of war um, in, in our in human history. And the purpose behind it is because the woman is, like you say, so symbolic, not only of, I don't know, the home, but of the nation. And really the, the purpose of weaponizing rape and attacking women en masse and in such a brutal, savage fashion um, is to humiliate and demean the entire nation. And this is important because especially for, for Islamist jihadist groups like Hamas, who do not view women as people, this is probably the best intersection or confluence of anti-Semitism and misogyny, uh, the only group, perhaps other than 
gay people that they have less respect or recognition for than Jews are, are women. And it was as much an attack on, on women and women's bodies um, as it was on Jewish people. But because women are not considered full beings by uh, adherents of ideologies like Hamas, really the purpose of it was to uh, demean Israeli men and, and the Israeli state and the Israeli people because women are really more like possessions and conduits for, in their minds, for producing the next generation uh, of Israelis. So we're not seen as individuals. And I think that that's, that's really evident in um, the nature of the attacks, the dehumanization of the victims. And I think one of the things that was so striking for me, and I think for most people here, and it's the reason that these images haunt us, is because there are very few examples in modern history of mass rape on this scale that contained this kind of brutality. There are things that I read about in forensic reports and which I had to comb through extensively when writing various articles on this subject and survivor's testimony and testimony from first responders, things that I, I never encountered. I'm going in circles, especially today, because I'm hopped up on cold meds and also because on a personal level, this is really difficult subject matter for me to talk about, but I know how critical this subject is. So I feel like, you know, Amy, put the armor on, go, go into the cave. I'm like realizing there's all these things that I, I, I haven't brought up like yesterday or today, earlier today, it was reported that um, these two UN rights experts are calling for justice about this. You know, one of them, Alice Jill Edwards, who's the UN Special Rapporteur on Torture, said the growing body of evidence about reported sexual violence is particularly harrowing. These acts constitute gross violations of international law amounting to war crimes, which given the number of victims and the extensive premeditation and planning of the attacks, may also qualify as crimes against humanity. Joining Alice in that statement was Morris Tidball-Bins, the special rapporteur on extrajudicial executions. And I should be relieved, you know, but I'm not. Because three months ago, I was having these conversations. Three months ago, I was reaching out to an academic expert who I know who talks about this stuff in her work. And I was telling her, these are crimes against humanity. I don't know how you've been able to parse through these testimonies. Two years ago, when we were working together at Haaretz, I was one of my moonlighting gigs. I translated testimonies from women who were in Mengele's labs and um, they were sterilizing women, Jewish women, and doing all sorts of horrific experimentation on them. And translating three testimonies really like set me set me off. I mean, it was so, so psychologically damaging. And hearing you speak now, and your Tom was on recently, it's, it is really, it's a terror. It's, it's a psychological warfare because they knew that not only were they live streaming and sending these videos to the families of, and putting this stuff on Facebook, on the Facebook pages, even of some of these people or sending them in the family WhatsApp group. It's that a whole 
I don't even know how many thousands of people from the Zaka people to soldiers who are down there to people like you, to journalists, to forensicists, all on the you know front lines of this, having to be exposed and re-exposed and re-exposed. And now the UN is like, oh, come to us with your October 7 testimonies. Or, oh, you guys don't have all the evidence exactly in the form that we want it because in Judaism, we put such an emphasis on burying the dead as soon as possible. Well, and that's also only to my knowledge what the most recent comments from the two uh, repertoires on on torture, I think that's their their specialty. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the first explicit condemnation um, of Hamas's sexual violence against women. Exactly. And ongoing sexual violence. And to- that might be why I'm so pissed. Like the New York Times came out with that report like a week and a half ago. Mm-hmm. And I didn't feel relieved when it came out. I felt angry, so angry, like just waves of anger. I, I was angry. I'm, I'm still angry. Like it took them all of one minute to say, oh, Israel bombed the hospital, which we didn't. It took them two seconds to say, oh, you know, 500 killed, 1,000 killed, take the Hamas stats. And it takes everyone a, a zero seconds to say, we believe her. And then when it comes to us, it's like they GoPro'd. There's all of this evidence. And there's something you said at the end of one of your articles that's ringing a bell about the Yazidi women and the genocide there by ISIS. And you said if the Yazidis had had access to weapons and they could have defended themselves, would they have received the ire of the international community for doing so? Well, I think specifically if uh, the Yazidis had the the defense and the privilege of a state and a military and had the audacity to retaliate and respond, um, would they have been cast as the genocidaires and ISIS as freedom fighters? Just to kind of illustrate the the absurd, the logical absurdity and ab- and absence of causality in this conversation surrounding uh, October 7th. Yeah, I, I I really echo a lot of what you said, and I, I share the frustration, uh, even though I am, of course, glad that there is reporting going on now. And I think, I think there's a difference between uh, individual journalists and the work that they do in editorial decisions made by papers. So I think that I, I welcomed the New York Times investigation. I, I was angry that it took so long. I wish that there had been interim reporting conducted prior to because it's shocking to me that it took, I think, what, over two, well, well over two months, months. almost three months to have really any coverage whatsoever. Where Tablet Magazine came out on October 8th with an article about, you know, with eyewitness testimonies from Nova, from people who had seen this. Like you said, the interim reporting would have helped a bit. Well, and it, I mean, it's not, again, as if there wasn't enormous evidence that existed. And it was being covered within Israeli media, of course. And there were, there was some international reporting, but it took a long time. And there is, of course, this double standard at play where whenever there is violence perpetrated against Israelis and violence is claimed from Israeli sources, 
It's interrogated. Every single line is interrogated. It's questioned. It requires months and months of investigation in order to corroborate it before, before it will be accepted as fact. But whenever there are claims of violence against Palestinians, even though those claims are those claims are coming from Hamas, it is immediately accepted as fact by the most senior news organizations in the world, by governments, by international human rights organizations. Even though we know that they are not at all reliable narrators, that they don't, for example, when it comes to casualty rates, distinguish between civilians and combatants. And I mean, just some, something I, I think about as well, we're still uh, identifying bodies from October 7th. And like, for example, when the hospital was attacked, Shifa Hospital, and it was immediately claimed that it was the result of an Israeli airstrike. And it was, we learned after the fact that was obviously not true. Immediately, it was like less than an hour that it came out that, oh, 500, 500 people have died. And it's always 500. It's not ever 513 or 607. It's always an immediate even number. And I'm, and I'm just saying, coming from a country where we're still identifying bodies three months after this attack, the idea that Hamas is able to identify the exact number of people less than an hour afterwards, and that's accepted as fact, to me, it's just indicative of how uh, disproportionate and skewed reporting tends to be on this subject matter. And what, what is the signal? <laughs> I don't understand. Dor made uh, the wave sign. To talk about something else? No, it's like uh, kind of, we're going to wrap this. Uh, oh, for the music? Yeah, and we're going to go into a segment and then the... Fi- oh, right. Okay, cool. Timing. So I feel like I ended, no? This week's... On this week's episode of Solid Gold, we're talking about apostrophes and the possessive. <laughs> on this week's... On, a pa- on, on this week's... No, if you would stop me every time, I think people could be like, forg- to have a f- uh, to f- to have a forgiveness. How do you say the fucking shit? What happened in 2005? Just t- I'm on the edge of my seat. What true story? 2005. It all began in a basketball game. I was such a loser, but you know, you just do what you. You gotta do in Israel. You need to go to the military, and 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 when you are a kid, you doing this like after school activity, which you don't want. So it's the last game of the season, you know, like fourth quarter. <laughs> the other team is leading by two, and I'm I'm like I play like I don't know three minutes in a game. I just there for like the company and the good vibes, but. I really don't want to be on the field right now. But I don't know what's happened. Suddenly, the most important game of the season, fourth quarter, I don't know, two minutes to the end, I find myself, the, the, the coach said, door go, goes up. And I was like, what, what, what? Like, uh, 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 okay. And then, to be continued, because you know, commercial, it's short, it's just like one minute. No piercing, no problem. Head over to ZavJewelry.com with one L for gold body jewelry and use discount code DOOR24, that's D-O-R-24, 
for an additional 35% off your entire order. And you'll even get a free pair of 14 karat gold earrings in your first order. Both of us grew up in North America. Are you surprised at all? Like what we're seeing on the campuses that people are like, oh, well, I guess it's a, it's a resistance. So it's fine if they were raping Jewish women, cause this is how they're going to get liberated. And like the, we're the oppressors and they're the oppressed and blah, blah, blah. Like, are you, where do you think this is coming from? Like, what is going on? This is, this is crazy. This is supposed to be an open shut case. Here's the photographic evidence. Here's the video edited evidence. Here are the Hamas fighters saying we went out there. Our intention was to rape, kill, behead. We did that. This is what we wanted to do. And people brought her like, I don't know if that's true. Could you speak to that a bit? So look, I, I think despite the fact that I like you grew up in North America, I grew up in Canada, which is very different from the United States, just to, to put that out there. Despite my upbringing and that I, you know, I attended a Canadian university and I was very aware of this discourse on, on campuses. I was still very shocked in, in the initial, with the initial reaction from people that I perceived to be from my camp, you know, liberal progressives, the West, the North American and European political left, people that I went to school with, who I knew. And the fact that, you know, I could have been in the South when this transpired. I have family from Southern Kibbutzim who spent their their day on October 7th sitting in their bomb shelters. And it's pure luck. It's just pure luck that they emerged, you know, okay in body, if not in spirit. But my, my brother and my nephews all could have been down there and things could have been very different. And I could have been there. And it's an eerie uh, feeling to see in real time how your peers and friends would have reacted had had you been among the, the murdered and the raped. And and so I think it's emotional. My, my reaction was emotional and it was a feeling of complete desertion and betrayal. And it was only upon, you know, after some reflection, looking at the situation and seeing, oh, well, actually this didn't happen overnight. It really isn't, it's it's horrifying and shocking, I think, to see the extent of it, because I think probably I, I did think always that I didn't anticipate that something like this would happen, but I couldn't have predicted that in the event of at least rape and sexual assault and such a blatant attack on women that feminists and liberals who have just spent the last several years chanting Me Too and Believe All Women would be among those leading rape denial and justifying and rationalizing the mass slaughter of Israelis and the mass rape of Israeli women. If you put it in the larger context, though, and look back on the development of the ideology on not just university campuses, I think they get the most attention because they're obviously so loud and vocal, but it's part of a larger ideology that's permeated the West and the left within North America and Europe for decades. And it used to be on the fringe and it, it used to be, uh, I think, a lot less impactful, but it's 
now come to permeate the mainstream to an extent, to the extent that people think that it's a reasonable position to suggest that not, not only are all Israelis colonizers and European imperialists, um, and really just to parrot whatever propaganda they've ingested, but to suggest that because of that, that um, all Israelis are fair game and that violence against them is sanctioned entirely. And this kind of thinking, it, it's not it's not new. It has a, it's a long uh, it has a long history. I think that it comes from viewing the world, which is this is how th- this is how you're taught to view the world. I think in, in, on a North American university campus through a very binary lens through which the world is divided into angels and devils, and your membership in those groups is based on very specific criteria that typically has to do with the perspective of the state and the society in which you're living in. So if it's in the U.S., for example, and Americans, I think, are the worst at this in terms of projecting their own very specific political and societal dynamics onto other parts of the world as though they're one and the same. And so in the U.S., for example, the the lens through which everything is viewed is through racism and white supremacy. And so when Americans are looking at this conflict, it is only through that lens. And there is no there is no recognition of the fact that there are different conditions that make that an inappropriate model to project onto this foreign conflict. And if you're in Europe, for example, everything is through the lens of colonialism and imperialism, which again is simply, it, it's not, it does not apply in the same way to uh, Israel or to the Mideast. And I think that when you're you're unable to accept any nuance and you see the world only through uh, a lens of oppressors and oppressed and victims and perpetrators, which is the case at the moment, when the reality is that as um, Yuval Noah Harari, he talks about this and he's talked about it recently, that most groups at one point or another and often simultaneously are both victims and perpetrators. And this obsession with viewing both the modern world and human history and power dynamics between different groups and cultures through this notion that there are some cultures and some societies that are pure and morally superior and untainted is just a historical hokum, and it's not helpful for understanding this con- conflict or any other. It's so sad to me that, in a sense, we've evolved to this point of these boxes, these boxes people are so keen on putting themselves and other people in, and then spending so much of their lives trying to get out of. There's something so static about a worldview that pits one side against the other. It really diminishes the possibility of reconciliation and a way forward. And it's the antithesis of life, which when we think about this like precious life that we have and these elements and I mean, I have a body. It's so weird. I have a body and it knows how to like lift. I know my arm knows how to like lift, even though I don't understand how that happens and all these organic elements and the unexpected and something that says 
oh, this person will be that way because of this. And that person will be that way because of this. I, I appreciate that it probably comes from the fact that the world is a zoo and it's super chaotic and nobody knows what's going on. And all these, like, we're in like a doomsday kind of vibe with the climate change and everything, but how sad, how profoundly sad. Well, it's not just sad. It's also uh, deeply destructive and dangerous. Yes. Also (laughs) this is the kind of thinking that sanctions violence and promotes violence against particular groups. Because essentially what's happened in the case of Israel is that um, people feel that they can deny and negate rape and violence against Israelis or or justify it because they've been uh, convinced through a steady diet of propaganda and indoctrination to believe that Israel is the uh, kind of a, this amorphous evil. And Israelis are not real people. It's a dehumanization process. And that's why they can say, well— all Israelis are, are colonizers or imperialists or insert whatever the most, the greatest sin of that given society is, and that's projected onto Israelis. And therefore, any act of violence or armed resistance, um, as it is now termed, is permitted against them. And no action that they take, no re- they have no recourse, and any action that they take is illegitimate. So, so it has very real-world impact and and that's why I think it's important to understand the origin of these ideas and the development of them. And that's why it's so dangerous to consume them so uncritically. It's a tremendous topic. I can feel your frustration at the constraints of time as if there's more, if we had more time, we'd get to the bottom of it. If we had more time, we'd be able to like really, really drive the point home this is millennia of Jew hatred, protocols of the elders of Zion, Mein Kampf, Soviet propaganda, Western leftist anti-Semitism, all these threads that connect. I think about our conversations leading up to this one. We can always do more and more. There's so much to be discussed here. For now, I'll say, you're right. It's not just sad. It's super dangerous. And I'm really, really grateful to you for being a frontline worker through this collective trauma for pouring through the testimonies, for using your wit and intellect to write for all of us through this. I am deeply grateful to you for everything you've been doing, Ariella, and I'm super grateful to you for coming on today. Thanks so much for having me, Ames. Of course. Thank you so much to Shema, Home for Podcasts, Maya Schlesinger, Jonathan Gall, Dora Comet, Ariella Carmel, I'm Amy Sapan. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like more emotionally raw coverage, we have an Instagram, Patreon, a YouTube channel, and even an email account. The handles are October 7th, the podcast. The email address is october 7th the podcast at gmail.com. We love hearing from you. Shoot us an email, even if it's just to say hi or I kind of disagree with that. Whatever. We love, we love, we really love hearing from you. Thanks for keeping an open mind. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and stay tuned.